Welcome to The Protagonistas, a podcast that is centered on highlighting the stories and experiences of Black, Indigenous, and other women of color among communities of faith. Our conversations sit at the intersection of race, gender, sexuality, and spirituality. I'm your host, Kat Armas. In today's episode, I chat with Lisa Colon Delay about her fabulous new book, The Wild Land Within. I so enjoyed reading Lisa's book and chatting with her about it as she offers such great historical and spiritual insight. In our conversation, we chat about the contemplative life and spiritual formation during these times and how marginalized people and groups use contemplation and spiritual formation for sustenance and the long road of racial justice. We also talk about the difference between Eastern and Western traditions And included in this is one of my favorite nerdy topics, the notion of penal substitutionary atonement. We talk about how pervasive this has been in Western culture, but it is just something that Eastern folks have absolutely no framework for. We also talk about wounds and fears and how contemplation and silence before God might help us heal. Of course, not in the place of therapy, but as a necessary and beautiful and helpful addition. I absolutely loved this conversation, and I know you will too. Enjoy, and welcome to The Protagonistas. Okay, so I am super excited for today's conversation because I have with me Lisa Colon Delay. Um, and we're going to be talking about her up or actually her new book that just came out, um, The Wild Land Within. And I have to say, um, this book has been so helpful for me as I've literally read it within like three days. I'm almost done. I have like two chapters left, but <laughs> which I plan to finish soon. But Something that uh, Lisa and I were, were just talking about is how important books on spiritual formation are, particularly right now. So we're going to talk a little bit more about that. But first, Lisa, I would love for you to introduce yourself. Um, tell us about your spiritual background growing up. Like, how are you, where you are now and why? And yeah, what's that journey been like? Yes, one of those huge questions. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. Well, first of all, I just want to say, Kat, that I'm just so delighted to be on your program. I've just listened to you for a while and um, it's such an honor. And it's so nice to hear my name in your mouth. (laughs) (laughs) I I love the beauty of Spanish words uh, properly said. So um, (laughs) I have this background that has been deeply steeped in religion and spirituality since birth. It's a cradle Christian really. But my my experience is sort of unique. I, as a pastor's kid, I was really in a bubble, a Christian bubble. But my father, who um, he's passed away, but he was Puerto Rican and, and was a brown man and married my mom, who was very Anglo. And um, they both met in a very fundamentalist Baptist seminary. And she wanted to be a pastor's wife, I think, while she went there. And <laughs> he went there to be a pastor. And they met and they um, moved to Puerto Rico, where I was born. And he had actually grown up mostly in Brooklyn. So he wasn't, um, he was very fluent in in both languages. But um, it was very white-centered. And he really experienced erasure, but he tried as hard as he could to assimilate. And right 
that really had a big, big impact on me because I could see him needing to reject a lot of things about himself and, and about the Puerto Rican culture that were truly part of him, truly right. part of his world and his being. And that was considered too unfamiliar, too dangerous, too sinful, uh, even though there, that wasn't very accurate. And so um, kind of had this dual culture experience and always had a, a place in my heart for Jesus, I guess you could say. I remember praying at a very early age and not really knowing um, that there could be a, a world without Jesus in it, that sort of thing. But um, there was a lot of things that were very disruptive in my life that allowed me to deconstruct in different ways over the years. And I guess those could be their own books. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I guess suffice it to say that my dad left uh, the, not just the ministry, but he left Christianity. He left everything behind. And um, my parents got divorced. And I was really, really deconstructing then because that seemed so against God's will. You know, how right. could this be? I would pray, get them back together, God, you know. And um, it really disrupted some ideas I had about prayer. Like, does God answer prayer? And why wouldn't he answer mm. this one? This is a really good one. And mm. So things were deconstructed early on about what what is God, who is God. Mm. And um, I guess fast forward, I'll just fast forward for a little while. Um, I went to seminary to study spiritual formation. And I really think, at first, I think it was to be able to write to Christians in a more learned way, in a more authoritative way that it's not just from my own experience, but really studied things, you know, learned Hebrew and studied about the New Testament culture and all sorts of things that would help, especially spiritual formation wise, because that's really my, my heart's cry. I want to see, um, I want to journey with people as they transform and heal and have more of a sense of God's felt presence in their life. And, and not be, so when I went to seminary, people were like, what, you're going to be a pastor of a church? <laughs> like, it's just, I'm just as surprised as I was. I was like, no, 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 it's okay. <laughs> Calm down. Um, just want to you know, help people in their, in their walk and as they grow um, in the fruit of the Spirit with the Holy Spirit helping them, obviously directing that. But what I found is really that seminary turned out to be a place of, of great healing of learning about the totality of the history of Christianity. Christianity didn't happen 500 years ago or mm -hmm. 150 years ago. God isn't white. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, there are all sorts of impositions on Christianity that our American affluent white centered culture brings to it, brings to the table and then acts like that's the normal one. Mm -hmm. When really that's the, the fringy kind of Christianity. Yeah. And if we take a look at, the global church at the historic church and at the people who are actually Christians in the world, Americans are quite the minority uh, in, in every way, you know, mm. whether it's socially, social economically affluence wise. Um, and I really got uh, into authors, mostly Catholic authors were unknown to me. And I got into reading Merton and Henry Nowen and a lot of these people that were unknown to me that I that had been vilified really in my early childhood 
anybody Catholic or even Methodist was like probably going to burn in hell. Uh, (laughs) A much more generous orthodoxy, understanding how much people can love God from, from different perspectives and from different traditions. And the contemplative stream was opened up to me and I thought, oh my goodness, this is what I've been missing. This is this piece that isn't just about doing and productivity and um, in a sense, the Protestant way of earning your salvation is probably productivity. So even though Protestants are very quick to say, no, no, it's grace, it's grace, right. although do this, this, this. <laughs> right, right, right. So, it's the Catholics that are all about works, but yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, it just depends on the person, right? Right. So, <laughs> we, we can all be, you know, uh, sucked into mm-hmm. perfectionism, works-based, all sorts of things. And I, right. I've been so guilty of it myself because I was taught to behave myself, to be a good girl. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a somewhat conditional love situation. And and that's, I think, most of us, we we have parents who are can be displeased and withhold love in some manner from us mm-hmm. if we're not, you know, holding up our end of the bargain or something. Right. So what I found with contemplative, the contemplative spiritual tradition, if you will, is just a a place of calm, a place Mm -hmm. of quietly waiting on the Lord, a place where I could lay all my burdens down. And I didn't have to do all the talking. And Mm -hmm. I'm a talker. And I was told, you know, you keep keep that conversation going with God, don't stop praying. And it wasn't until, you know, in my late 20s, maybe or 30s, oh, guess what, you can listen too. it's a conversation, Mm -hmm. you could do some listening. And I was kind of, you know, mind is blown. Oh, that's that seems appropriate. Yeah, that actually seems to make a lot of sense. So right. I started, <laughs> I started finding some great relief in the silence. Yeah, that's so good. That's so good. There are so many questions that I want to ask follow up, um, particularly yeah. about the silence and particularly about prayer and and so many good things that you just shared. Um, because yeah, I think that that so much of what you said is true. That we there are so many expectations um, as Christians, as people, as humans, right? That we're expected. Yes. Well, if you're a Christian, then you're expected to, you know, constantly talk to God. You're expected to constantly read your Bible. You're expected to do these things. Um, but in many ways, you know, it's hard to meet those expectations when we're not doing, you know, when we're, we're not, we don't have a robust inner sort of life. Mm. Um, so talk to me when we talk about like the inner life and just our inner beings and who we are. Um, mm. Talk to me about the wild land within. I know it's the title of your book, um, <laughs> but what specifically does it refer to? Like, what do you mean? What are you talking about? Yeah. Um, and give us a little bit um, about that. Yeah. And thank you for asking that. Although it might seem like an obvious question. It is the question, right? So right. Um, <laughs> I think of the wild land within as, as an expansion of the four soils parable that Jesus talks about. And if people don't know what that is, just quickly, Jesus talks about the inner life and he talks about a sower sowing seeds of God's message. And these seeds can fall on different kinds of soil. There's the trampled footpath, which nothing gets into that and birds scoop up those seeds and there's just no chance for plants to to germinate and grow then there's the rocky soil with it has a little bit of topsoil and seeds germinate spring up into plants right away but then this hot sun of struggle and life and regular stuff comes up and and these plants just wither and die they can't take it there's no root system going for them and then there's the soil that has 
gets overcome with weeds and thorns. So the plants grow up fine at first, and then the cares of the world, the desires for riches, all these things, these competing things in our lives is particularly true in our society where we're very distracted and busy. Uh, we have lots of other things going on, and those things can crowd out the message of God and the message of God being God's love and God's presence in our life and, of course, the gospel message, but it's it's so many, it's so much more. And those plants don't do well either. They, they're anemic, really. And then, of course, there's the good soil. So, the good soil is is harrowed in the garden of our heart, is seeds are planted there, they grow up, they produce fruit 30, 60, 100 times what was planted originally in seed. And I think that all those kinds of soil exist within us in these unseen parts of ourselves. And when we say the wildland within, I'm talking about the unseen world. So this is memories, thoughts, uh, experiences, feelings. It's all the things that are us that you can't see, but that are incredibly real. And that's most of us. You know, that's what, what we actually yeah. see is is a little bit of us, but right. what's actually going on is a lot. Um, and so that can be wounds. It can be accomplishments, joys, aspirations. Everything is is wound up in that. And I, I'm trying to avoid in the book this, I, these different dichotomies that are false ones, like the, the body and the mind, right. the heart and the head. Um, I'm just trying to think of us as an entire organism, and we have this unseen land within that has wild places where when there's shadow and, and unseen parts and there's wounded parts where, um, you know, we get hurt going into that territory because it's, it's really rough land. So mm -hmm. the wildland within represents all these parts of ourselves, some known to us, some unknown. And God, I believe, wants us to journey into every single part mm -hmm. that's possible, um, journey along with us. And shed light into all those crevices and crannies mm -hmm. so that we can be fully whole and healed. And, and that produces fruit. So when we have wounds that have these little, you know, yucky spots within us that have been festering wounds, perhaps, maybe from a betrayal, maybe from a disappointment, those wounds produce bad soil mm -hmm. if they're unhealed. Right. And the bad soil doesn't produce good fruit, a good harvest. Uh, the fruit of the spirit doesn't happen out of wound mm. unless the wound has been attended to. And we can be wounded healers. I'm not saying that you have to be all healed and, right. and you know, perfect. Obviously, that's, that would be none of us. But there's places that, that are so trauma-filled um, or triggering or so pieces of, of us that are so insecure that it's very difficult to find growth in those areas because we have to move through those places first. And so what I was noticing is that a lot of spiritual formation can involve introductions to new spiritual practices. Sometimes I'll do a retreat and they'll say, oh, could you teach us centering prayer? Could you teach us Lexio Divina? And I'm so happy to do that. It's so neat to be introduced to an ancient way of praying that can be so refreshing in our lives. Mm -hmm. But what I noticed is that no one attends to what happens when you invest deeply with your heart and with your time into these spiritual practices. Usually what happens is some dross comes up to the surface and it needs to be skimmed away. And I think sometimes the thought is, 
you know, I started praying this prayer and then I started feeling terrible and I started feeling angry and I started feeling mm. bitter. And I remembered this old wound where this person betrayed me. And I don't think I'm doing this practice right or there must be something terribly mm. wrong with me because this is not going well. And that's exactly how the process of spiritual practice works. It actually mm. brings those things up. God is saying, okay, I see this and you right. see this and let's let's heal this. I'm here with you. And I... um all these things can be taken care of with my love. Mm, that's so good. Yeah, um, that really speaks to me because I, I remember like so much um, feeling these feelings of guilt when I was, yeah, having these like quote unquote quiet times and they yeah. had to be so, you know, like fuzzy and like I just had to feel all this love for, you know, and sometimes like you said, that just wasn't what was coming up. Um, mm -hmm. And it's because in many ways we're not taught to, um, yeah, deal with these wounds, right? And yeah. deal with these. And of course, you know, there's many ways to do that professionally and, and yeah. you know, there's many ways to do this, but I think in a spiritual sense, you know, giving our wounds and giving up our fears to God, I know that you have a chapter on fear. I don't know if you want to also talk a little bit about that, you know, like what is it or yeah, just basically say more about fears, identifying your fears. I know you mentioned that and also, you know, befriending them. And how has yeah. that shaped your spiritual formation as well? Whew, that is a that is a really big question too, because I, I think if if we're going to be very honest, we'll all say that there's things that we fear. And sometimes if we're fearful people, it, it comes out in other ways, usually neurotic ways. So if we're fearful, we might um, be defensive or we might get angry or um, there's little mechanisms we do. Uh, we might be afraid to try new things or afraid to meet new people. There's so many ways that fear comes out. It can come out in a, in a, a boastful person is usually a very afraid yeah. person. An angry person is usually a very afraid person. And mm -hmm. these fears are not something um, to be ashamed of at all. They are just normal things that happen when you're a social mammal. And mm -hmm. uh, that's part of being human, that we have points of fear. And I don't think the idea is to pretend they're not there, run away, or, you know, stomp the fears to the ground. I think that is just conversing with the fears and learning more about yourself as you begin to notice them and, and just notice, you know, what's happening right now. I feel a little hijacked. I feel a little pain or discomfort. Is it possible that I'm afraid? And that's okay if I am. Is it possible that I'm afraid? And what getting down deeper in, into some of what that is. And I do recommend, I just want to say this from the outset, that I do recommend that this book be read with in a group setting where you feel like you have some trusted friends. Even better if you read it with uh, along with a spiritual director or if you find things triggering in the book go to a therapist because I, yeah. I think therapy is wonderful and I wish I wish it on everyone a good mm -hmm. match with a therapist because it it does so much of the heavy lifting and you shouldn't have to do it alone it's not meant to happen alone so when I talk about fear um, there's several ways I approach it in the book but one of the ways is is by um, talking about wild creatures in the in the wild land and so one of the creatures that I talk about is the fox. And this is the creature within us, if you will, obviously a metaphor, but a fox is kind of wily, kind of um, carnivorous, uh, is an opportunist, but is also vulnerable and shy. Mm -hmm. A rabbit is very much extremely vulnerable, is one of these freeze flight or flight type of things. And the rabbit tends to want to run away or blend in uh, during trauma. And so we 
if we don't attend properly to these creatures, there's infestations, I believe, that that can dominate our thoughts and our time and our um, and our lives in ways that don't help us grow. And so I talk about the the predators and prey in the wild land and about some of these aspects to us that are, again, completely normal, nothing to be ashamed of, but mm-hmm. it's worth knowing what's in there, what exists in this wild land and our, the ways we try to avoid fear or uh, look away from it instead of just admitting that there are these places to us, sometimes very unknown, mm-hmm. that exist, that God is perfectly fine with these parts of us. We're not perfectly fine with them, mm-hmm. <laughs> but God is. And that we can welcome each one of these parts of us and welcome them into union, into healing, into wholeness. And some of these spiritual practices, I go through a spiritual practice in each chapter, and it helps us to settle down. Um, A lot of the practices, some of them are contemplative, which means they're supposed to move us to a point of non-image and non-lingual prayer, which is much more like waiting on the Lord or listening or being I sometimes think of it as feeling the embrace of God, like maybe an an infant or a young child might just crawl up into your lap and and wait there and maybe fall asleep. I think of that as the experience we can begin to cultivate with God and be found in God's presence. And so some of the spiritual practices help us calm down enough um, where we don't get triggered when we sense our fear, but we can kind of reflect on it and slow down enough to say, okay, I think fear is is taking over this part, or I have a fearful response to this, and it's probably because of a wound. Hey, everyone, it's Kat. As a space for highlighting the stories of Black, Indigenous, and other women of color, this podcast has been important for so many listeners. And I would not be able to do this podcast if it weren't for the support of every single one of you. But beyond listening, you can help the show in other ways too. The first is obviously by heading over to your podcast app of choice and writing us a review. It helps the show greatly and doesn't cost you a dime to do it. That said, if you do have the funds to support the show, head over to patreon.com forward slash the protagonistas to learn more how your dollars can go to help fuel the growth of this podcast. For just a cup of coffee per month, you can keep this important work going. Again, that's patreon.com forward slash the protagonistas. I love so much that you, um, you know, invite us into this journey of exploring ourselves um, because, you know, I just find that so um, beautiful and I just find that so necessary and I find that so, um, yeah, holistic. And there's just so many words that I want to use for that, but I love uh, the idea of exploring your inner self. Um, I love the idea that we are wild and we are like animals and we are, you know, spiritual beings. And there's so much to us. I, I'm always talking about, you know, leaning into the complexity of who we are, right. Our multifaceted selves. Um, and I, so I really love that you invite us into that. Um, I do want to ask you about prayer and the idea of contemplation, because I really, I loved when you talked, you know, that chapter in your book. Um, but first um, I do want you 
to talk to us a little bit about, um, so you kind of start your book with um, differentiating between Eastern and Western traditions. Um, right. Can you talk a little bit about the differences between those? So, you know, for those who might not know, because I think that that's like a bit like a crux to everything that you're sharing, right? Um, mm-hmm. Just the, a different way, a non, I guess, Western way of uh, looking at our spirituality or our spiritual self. So if you want to just give us a little bit about that. Yeah, well, this book, attempts to do quite a lot, but it, it does it within a framework. So um, when you get done reading this book, you might be like, wow, that was a lot of different things. And oh my goodness, you know, but it's actually within the within a framework. So you can kind of make sense of it. And, and the idea is that we have a wild land, like we went over, but a, a land has a climate, a particular climate, and the climate determines weather systems. And so I wind up speaking about these fundamental things about how we become who we are. And that's determined by a lot of influences that we have no control over, like where you're born, who you're born to, what you look like, um, who you want to sleep with. Um, All these things are sometimes have nothing to do with choices necessarily, but they have to do with maybe where you're situated in, in your society or your socioeconomic um, status or something like that. So, I go into a lot of these hidden influencers we don't even know we have that have made us who we are. And that um, happens in the beginning of the book. And I talk about there's these incredible influencers, even for people who are not Christians, but people who have been uh, in Christian uh, ecosystems, if you will, or, or the United States, which is some people say a Christian country. It's been founded by people who... Um, had Protestantism usually in most places, Protestantism, but it's a particular kind of Protestantism that is very particular to our country and looks a certain way. And one of the things that I learned in in my studies is that the kind of spirituality that Jesus had and these early apostles had his apostles and just the Jewish people in general in that part of the world is a really different way of of viewing the human organism than we think of now in modern times. We've been very affected in Protestantism by the Enlightenment and the Age of Reason and, um, and separating the spiritual and the physical. It's a very huge theme that overrides many things of how, how we think and right. act in the world and how we assume that God might act. Right. And with the Middle Eastern mind those everything is spiritual there's just no part that isn't spiritual number one that's a real obvious one but what happened in um eastern the eastern christians basically stayed with that mindset that is very culturally prominent and as christianity moved to the west especially in the roman empire where it eventually became co-opted with the powerful roman empire and ways of um, subjugating people and taking over land and forcing confessions uh, to, and conversions to Christianity. These particular aspects of Christianity really changed, and they especially shifted in terms of how you run a superpower empire. You run a superpower empire by law and order. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you run it by, um, I would say, you know, forcing your, your ways onto people. <clears throat> and people either have to assimilate to those ways or uh, suffer the consequences. And 
that isn't actually, uh, there's no room then for, for in a way for different cultures to express. Now, this happens a little bit less in Catholicism than it does in Protestantism because Protestantism is this offshoot then of Western thinking and, and Western empire theology that really originated in Rome and, and that superpower kind of um, purview of the world. So once Christianity became this dominant militarized uh, religion and it was a way to uh, convert other people groups as you're as you're attacking them and taking them over the kind of things we're talking about that relate to Jesus and his early uh, and his life and his teachings are really co-opted with this empire these empire aims <laughs> and so what happens is it gets pretty you could say corrupted, it gets co-opted with these aims of, of power, which isn't what Jesus was doing, or he would have not allowed himself to be killed by the, by the right. power. He allowed himself to, be, to succumb to the empire. He didn't take over the empire and become king, right? So mm-hmm. um, crime and punishment is a really big one. And, and I think one of the things I said that I even surprised myself when I said this and, and believed it so much is that the problem of evil in the West has been solved by the ideas of crime and punishment in, in this system of crime and punishment. And that's how we've solved it and how we still solve it. So we have our um, judicial system is all about solving the problems of evil through punishment uh, and seeing sins as evil and crimes and punishing them. But in the West, in Western, I'm sorry, in the East, Sin is seen as illness, not as crime. So when you see sin as illness, and it's something that's not like, oh, good, you're ill, you're sinning, don't worry about it. No, it's, it's a serious thing. It's a serious problem because God is the physician that will, wants you well. Mm-hmm. But in this way, um, the Desert Fathers, for instance, talk about preventing sickness, preventing sin. They don't talk about um, atonement in the same penal substitution way at all, ever. They don't talk about original sin. They don't. They don't even approach it. It, it isn't. It doesn't come up. It's not a thing. And so, we're really fixated on sin and crime and punishment, and who's going to pay for your crimes? But in the Eastern Christian tradition, and even now, that just doesn't come up. And so I wanted to broaden people's ways of thinking about Christianity. It doesn't mean you have to throw everything out that you ever learned, but add on the other piece that you've missed and realize there are other ways to think about sin. There are other ways to think about what Jesus did and especially uh, take into consideration his life, not just the crucifixion. No, Lisa, I think that what you're saying is so important. I remember uh, in my first few years of sem- years of seminary um, studying atonement theories, and this was, I mean, massive for me. <laughs> this shifted mm-hmm. so much in my thinking of, of, like you mentioned, of sin, of understanding God, understanding myself, like understanding this whole Christianity thing and how we relate to God. Yeah. You know, I remember it was one of my professors, Joel Green, who he actually wrote a book about atonement theories. And he talks about how in Eastern, um, in Eastern places or in Eastern ways of thinking and Eastern ways of being, how there's literally no framework for the way that we understand penal substitutionary atonement. Like there's literally yeah. no framework. Like they're like, well, what, yeah. I don't get it. Like, how does, what do you mean? You know, 
Um, and so that was so healing for me because I was yes. like, oh, so this isn't yes. the only way to understand, you know, like mm-hmm. God didn't, you know, murder Jesus or whatever, you know, for our, you know, salvation or mm-hmm. there's just so many ways of seeing it. Um, so, yeah, I think that what you're what you're bringing up is really important. And I think um, particularly when we're thinking about spiritual formation and in our inner selves, yes, because yes. this is foundational to how yes. you relate to God. Exactly, right? exactly. And, and who you think God is. And if you think God thinks you're worth it, uh, right. or yeah, for me, it was always growing up, I thought, oh, thank God for Jesus, because God really hates me. And exactly. uh, Jesus and God are like, Jesus is like, no, don't kill her. I will give my life. And it's just a really sick way of seeing God, because we're not talking about two or th- three different distinct gods. We're, like, that is not a picture of love either. And right. It doesn't show us God's relationship with the son accurately. It, it's, mm-hmm. it's very twisted. And, and this, this is a construct. We have to remember that original sin is a construct. It, right. It's places where they get this idea is hinted at in, in places. But it's, it's basically a way to answer the question, why are people so dang sickos and evil right. and seemingly? But Right. We're all flawed. I mean, that that's kind of what you get when you're born. And we're expecting, I remember my daughter, and this will happen to you, Kat, but my <laughs> daughter is the sweetest. She was like a ray of light. But at 18 months, she knew how to trick her brother by hiding stuff on him that she wanted. Now, oh is that because she's evil? Or right. she's an opportunist. Right. And it wasn't from a wounded place. It was from a, hey, I want this thing. Survival. He, yeah, I'm, I know better than him. She's using her brain. I don't think it's because right. she's evil and because right. sin was passed down to her through sexual reproduction. I right. I think we are really jumped the shark. So, of course, there's going to be things where she can use her, her agile mind to help him and help her at the same time. And she can learn that. Um, Of course, we're going to all sin. I don't think that someone's going to come along and just suddenly not be a sinful person. And we're going to sin more and more in in worse ways, the more wounded we are. But if we start out on the the premise that, well, you're disgusting, depraved, and the flesh is bad, and it's the the body is the gateway to sin. Right. From a spiritual formation standpoint, that's a no-go for me right. because that is essentially saying, well, why bother? Why bother? Exactly. You know, I think yeah. I, I'm much more hopeful than that. And I have seen people change. I've worked in prison ministry and I've seen people go from death to life. Mm-hmm. And it's not because they thought they were you know, pieces of poop. It was because <laughs> they knew God loved them. They could right. sense my love for them and not my love that came from just me, but that God's love was coming through me. And it was, it was so real that they could be moved and changed and not just me, of course, but all sorts of other things working in their lives to, to keep them uh, moving into a generative place. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That makes me think, um, you know, when I was studying this um, back in seminary, I just remember it was more so this idea and in, in talking about prison stuff, this idea of like rehabilitation and, and, and yeah, like we suffer from things because of, you know, because we're wounded or because um, sin is seen more so as like some sort of, you know, like an illness or something not, um, you know, like you said, that this worm theology that we're like worms that just, you know, and like we're, just, you know, God is just so gracious to even look at us, you know? Right. Um, so, yeah. So I think that's really important. Um, and, and it's the idea. And you, 
mention this. So this is actually a good place to talk about prayer um, because you talk about contemplation and you Mm -hmm. talk about um, and also repentance. Right. And like what that sort of means of like looking to God. I think that that's sort of or or words along those lines that you use. Um, So if you want to talk to us a little bit about how this fits into the idea of prayer um, contemplation, stillness. Um, and can you say more about this and how your prayer life has transformed? Um, and then along these lines, you also mentioned how these practices of awareness um, and contemplation actually strengthen our physical nerves. Like it literally yes. biologically does stuff to us, which I thought was super fascinating. Yeah. If you want to talk just about all of these things, I know I, I threw a lot at you, so <laughs> we can break I'll, it up. <laughs> I'll catch what I can. Um, yeah, I'll mention that Uh, Neuroscience has been incredibly fascinating to me from a spiritual formation standpoint, because how you um, how you interact with your body and how you uh, come to wholeness has everything to do with your physical body. And there are all kinds of uh, ways we trap trauma and stress in our physical body in different places. And of course, everybody knows this if you if you think about, um, say, you were almost involved in a car accident or someone was screaming or there was a fight, something in your body was tensed probably. And you might notice it in your jaw or your stomach or, um, you know, some people get intestinal problems. Some people get headaches. These are all physical manifestations of, of stress and trauma that are non-lingual, that the body is reacting and responding to the environment by triggering kind of very primal fight or flight. These are non uh, conscious, non-frontal lobe um, mechanisms in place to keep us alive, probably in a more primitive way in the jungle, in the forests, in the uh, you know deserts or desert places, not in our um, modern homes. But these are in place to keep us alive, and yet they wind up working um, to sometimes cause us suffering and sometimes cause us illness. And there's all sorts of ways that they've found out now with with brain scans, just how powerfully um, just how powerfully the brain and the body are connected in ways that can be repaired. And this is especially true of the vagus nerve. Um, the polyvagal nerve therapy is all about this too. And the vagus nerve is the nerve that connects basically the, the brain to the entire body and it winds around and goes to each organ and there are ways that you can tone this nerve with certain things. And some of these things are prayer, spiritual practices. Some of these things are singing and humming. Some of them are splashing cold water on your face. It's all these ways that you get your body more in tune and you can live a healthier life. And we're just, this is just how we're designed. And so I was very excited that things like meditative prayer were things that would calm down the whole system, calm down the entire nervous system so that it could work better, heal better, and bring us to wholeness. And really, this is something that humans have known for a long time, or we would have probably left these practices behind ages and ages ago. But I think certain communities that had these practices would thrive and survive, and and that's why they probably have remained um, all the way until now. They did, they've done lots of studies with different people like um, monks who are like Buddhist monks who've done this for years. And they see that the amygdala, the that anger part of the brain, is very, very small in Buddhist monks who have a very strong 
meditation practice. And and that's just going to be true. That doesn't it doesn't matter what religion you are, but if you're calming down and centering yourself, concentrating on your breathing and relaxing, that anger center of the brain gets physically smaller. Uh, it's incredible. I mean, it's, it's wow. physically, you will physically change your brain wow. yeah. with, with most of the things you do, but especially if you are uh, doing things that make you less triggered, make you, um, so, so like, as much as I do it myself, going on Twitter probably aggravates the amygdala, makes it bigger. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so let's see. One of the ways that uh, is a nice introduction into contemplative prayer is doing Lexio Divina because it's, it's pretty systematic. It has four movements and it starts out with God's word or usually or um, some kind of sacred text. And so it can just be a little piece of a verse that you might read. And I have a portion here in the book. Now, there's four ways, uh, I should say, there's four movements to Lexio Divina. And I have some verses set up on page 144 that you can use, or you can pick out something that's meaningful for you. So one of them is Psalm 27, 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Now, this is a really great verse for times when we're afraid and maybe right now like a lot of our brown and black brothers and sisters are afraid that if they get pulled over by a police officer maybe they won't make it out alive it is literally an existential issue of fear and of safety and something like Lexio Divina can be a spiritual practice that can bring us down uh, centered in our body and aware of God's presence and find the comfort of the divine. And so what you do is you read the verse. It's best to read it out loud, actually. And it also can be read in a group if you want to do this with other people. And you read it slowly and carefully a few times through. And this is just to kind of warm up to what the verse is saying and just ingest it more deeply. So we'd say, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And just you're just letting that sink in deeply. And then the second part of the movement of Lexio Divina is the reflect. And you're just dwelling on those words, rolling them over in your mind, and perhaps picking out a section that speaks uh, more strongly to you and allowing the Spirit to teach you. You're sort of rolling and reflecting these words and these, um, maybe you're getting images or maybe you're getting feelings, things like that. And you just kind of hold them and you're, you're, in this whole process, you're slowing down slower and slower. So I might hold on to, of whom shall I be afraid? Of whom shall I be afraid? And I'm thinking, I'm thinking, thank you, Lord, that you would provide the scripture and allow me to ask the question of whom shall I be afraid? When I have you, I don't have to be afraid. Ultimately, I'm safe in you. And then there's a response section, which is the third movement of Lexia Divina, which, is, which means sacred reading. And you take these meditative thoughts or questions, and this entire process can last anywhere from five, seven minutes to maybe 20 minutes or longer. And you just pray with those, those words that have come up through the verse or some other thoughts that have come up, and you just uh, speak to God as a friend and, and say um, what you'd like to God in oratio, which is really the third movement. So it's actually Lexio... Uh, meditatio, ratio, and then contemplatio. But for our purposes, we're just saying read, reflect, respond, and rest. And 
as you're responding to God in prayer, you're also saying something, but then you're allowing a little bit of time between what you say and what you say next, a little time of space, and then maybe a little more time of space, until that there is mostly silence and space, and you move into the fourth movement, which is the restful one, which is where we're centered down in the presence of God. And the rest movement, which is contemplatio, which is where we actually get to the place of contemplative prayer, means that we don't have to say anything, and we don't have to think of images, and we don't have to do any work. All we have to do is receive, receive grace and receive love. It is a once it's very freeing once you realize you don't have any responsibilities <laughs> in, in the prayer. All you have to do is receive the love of God. Mm. And these places of silence um, just become a posture of silent rest and listening and being aware that God's presence is with you. And you can stay with this time of silence for several minutes or as long as you're able and you, you cultivate this restoration for your soul. That's from page 143. And this is a good introduction into what is referred to as contemplative prayer because it it's kind of a training wheels down to contemplative prayer. To just jump straight into contemplative prayer where you're not practiced at it, it is quite hard because there's a lot of distractions that will yank you out of just resting. That's so good. I love um, focusing on receiving from God versus feeling like if we have to constantly um, – you know, be adding something to it. But God, I believe, as I'm sure you do, that, that there's so much that God wants us to receive from, you know, God. <laughs> and so I love that. Thank you for walking us through that for those who may not have ever, you know, heard of it or, or gone through it or done it. So you had mentioned, um, and this will be, yeah, my last question. So earlier, we kind of talked about this a little bit. And you mentioned now just like the just so much of what um, black and brown folks are going through right now, and not just right now, I mean, you know, throughout the course of history, but um, why is it that spiritual formation? Um, well, why do you think it's important for those of us who are involved in justice work, or for those of us who are, um, you know, wanting to continue changing the system or continue to wanting to fight for a more just and equitable system. And so how does spiritual formation fit into that? Mm-hmm. Um, I know you mentioned Howard Thurman and the work that he does in this because um, he is considered a contemplative sort of thinker. So anyway, if you want to talk yeah. a little bit about that. Well, for anybody who is involved in in the most important um, things of our time that concern justice, uh, the concern making things right. Um, if you have a heart for the oppressed, make sure that you're reading what comes out of those communities. Uh, Howard Thurman is great. Jesus and the Disinherited is a great place to start. I would also refer people to my my dear sweet friend, Dr. Loretta Coleman-Brown, who is a Howard Thurman scholar. She's also a spiritual director. One of the roles of a spiritual director and I would say that I, I hope and pray for a, a, a harvesting of spiritual directors, a, a harvesting for God among the population of black and brown people to be able to be a, a non-anxious presence, which is what is desperately needed in the long fight uh, 
for justice. It's it's not just a fight. It's a, it's a we're not leaving until things are done. We are we are not we're staying put and we're not giving up until things are done. And that takes a great amount of physical toll, emotional, psychic toll, of course, spiritual toll. And if it doesn't come from a grounded place, people burn out. They mm. become their worst selves. Uh, the fruit of the spirit is not as easily found. And the people um, in the civil rights movement were often the, the most prolific and most impactful people of that time were deeply grounded in contemplative spiritual tradition. And, and you can, that's also part of my book. <laughs> and so you can read about that a little in there, but one of the things that served as the fuel and the, the sustenance for people working alongside for your basic human liberties were people like um, Fred Shuttlesworth and Martin Luther King Jr. And behind them was Howard Thurman with this centering down non-anxious presence that would help to guide and sustain people. And I wanted to read a little bit from, from the book on this because, and, and actually uh, my friend Robert Monson um, is going to be writing towards this already is writing towards this to have the spiritual grounding to carry us through whatever we need uh, for the hard times that are coming ahead. Because what happens is when you, when you push against something like white supremacy, white centeredness, the pushback is gets to be like double. <laughs> and you wind up feeling like, wow, this is not just uphill. This is like we're pushing uphill and everybody's pushing back mm. and you need extra, you need all the extra you can get. So, um, what was interesting is that in the civil rights movement, people who had to, for the Alabama Christian civil rights movement era, people had to um, sign a pledge card if they wanted to be involved in the in this movement. And the pledge card had these things on it. I pledge myself, my body and person to the nonviolent movement. Therefore, I will keep the following 10 commandments. I will meditate on the teachings and life of Jesus. I will remember always that the nonviolent movement seeks in Birmingham justice and reconciliation, not victory. Mm. I will walk and talk in the manner of love, for God is love. I will pray daily to be used by God in order that all people might be free. Sacrifice personal wishes in order that all people might be free. Observe with both friend and foe the ordinary rules of courtesy. I will seek to perform regular service for others and for the world. I will refrain from the violence of fist, tongue, or heart. I will strive to be in good spiritual and bodily health. And the final one, follow the instructions of the movement and of the captain on a demonstration. So if anybody wanted to go to a demonstration, those other nine, of course, you're going to follow the, the leader of that protest that day and the captain of that march but you had to do the other nine too mm -hmm. and that was just as important that spiritual grounding and that spiritual formation was what really brought the victory and they had supernatural strength it, it couldn't just be their own strength and that's exactly the position we're in now mm. wow that's so good that's so powerful because yeah it's true i mean Without that grounding, without that supernatural strength, there's burnout. Yeah, I mean, and, and I know so many folks talk about this now of how, you know, many 
people who left evangelicalism or who are fighting for, you know, reform within the evangelical tradition, mm-hmm. um, many people just really end up doing the same things, uh, mm-hmm. repeating the same uh, harmful patterns yes. that they're fighting against, right? Or yeah. that they're trying to undo. And so I think that this grounding when in this, like you mentioned, this long, lifelong battle for justice that we're not, you know, mm-hmm. we're not going to be done anytime soon. This is until the day that we, you know, leave this earth that we're going to be fighting for justice. And in order yes. to make it till the end as whole persons, as holistic persons mm-hmm. um, that we're going to need this. Mm-hmm. I actually recently was listening to um, this, it was like on indigenous parenting or something like that. And it talked about um, indigenous ways of knowing and being and community sort of relations. And one of the things that that um, the person speaking mentioned, and I wish I remembered his name, but he mentioned that communities, you know, obviously throughout history have only ever known or been um, attuned to what's happening in their own community. And so mm. what he was saying is that nowadays it's almost impossible for us to handle all of the news that we hear, all of the horrific you know, news that we're constantly listening to um, on a daily, weekly. I mean, even yesterday was the, yes. we find out that, you know, uh, Chauvin was, or excuse me, was charged, was guilty, you know, on all three mm-hmm. counts, was convicted on all three counts for, for the murder of George Floyd. And then not even 10 minutes later, you know, we hear mm-hmm. of another police shooting of a young 15 year old girl in Columbus, Ohio. And so it's mm-hmm. constant, right? Yes. Um, and so I think about this often, like, how am I to be, um, to continue this fight mm-hmm. through this exhaustion? through this grief, Mm -hmm. through this feeling like there's just no, there's not, you know, winning, I guess, not the right word, Mm -hmm. but you know, there's no relief. There's no whatever Mm -hmm. you want to call it. And I think that you have something, what you say is really important and and taking Mm -hmm. from the contemplatives of the civil rights movement and taking from people like Howard Thurman. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we need to be grounded um, in order to keep going Um, because if not, yeah, we're going to burn out. We're going to give up. We're going to just give in to anger or grief or whatever it is and not be able to keep fighting. So, yeah, yeah, I think that's so have We can have all those feelings too. We can have the feelings of of anger, burnout, grief, rage. They're all okay, but they they can't direct our our life and our decisions. And I think it's good to to take from inspiration and uh, example from the oppressed communities that have been just, they just keep going, uh, not mm-hmm. just in this country, but in South America, other places right. where things have been hard for a long time for for all of modern memory. But also we can look to Jesus who we have to remember that Jesus as a human did not heal every single sick person. Jesus rested. Jesus took his time out. Right. He left the crowds and went away. And we don't have to be better than Jesus. <laughs> we don't. We we can take our our quiet time, our alone time. Uh, we can go alone off to pray or to just rest up, and we don't have to feel guilty about it. We we don't have to constantly be exhausted because right. Jesus is our example on on how to make wrongs right. When he's healing everybody. He actually isn't healing everybody. Right. He's doing what he can, and then he is going to rest. And, and we really have to take care of ourselves if we want to be good for our brothers and sisters. But if we want to be good in five years or 10 years and not completely overcome with um, different problems, psychological or physical, 
uh, we have to pace ourselves. Very important to pace ourselves and think of our lives as a marathon and not a sprint to different uh, justice victories and things like that. It's, there isn't, it's, it's going to be the work of our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren too. And so um, it's easy to get frustrated with the system as it is because it's so broken and, and so vile. But it's also in the best interest of our, our ancestors coming. I mean, we, we are the ancestors. For people who think of us as ancestors, it's in their best interest that we go at a good pace that is sustainable. Mm. Amen. Well, Lisa, thank you so much. This was so wonderful. Um, you know, your book is so important, and I'm so thankful for it. And I'm super excited to continue sharing about it. And thank you for letting us in on the inward journey on your wild land within. Um, it has been such a gift. Um, and if there's anything that you'd like to share for folks that are listening, um, I know that you have a podcast if you want to yeah. talk about that um, and anywhere else that they can find you. Thank you so much. This has been such a fun conversation, a neat opportunity, and I'm really very grateful to you. I have a weekly podcast called Spark My Muse, and I would love for more people to listen. If you get the book, I also would really appreciate reviews on Amazon or Goodreads. I've had some trouble with getting the book listed properly, so I'm mm. a little, probably a little bit behind on that. And if you want to speak to me about anything in the book, just please reach out. I'm easily found on Twitter or just Google Lisa DeLay or Lisa Colon DeLay. And um, thank you so much. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you so much for listening to The Protagonistas. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review.